Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to our service. Over the next three hours or so, we have the privilege to journey back to that time and space in human history when the creator of the universe submitted himself into the hands of the creatures of his universe as Jesus gave himself over to die on the cross. And we are looking together at some of the most wonderful and most agonized words ever to honor the pages of human history as we look together over the next three hours at the last words on the lips of Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. You'll find in your service sheet, I hope, a a general outline of how we hope this time will progress. The time is structured around Haydn's seven last words, and I'm very grateful to um, the Jubilee String Quartet for coming and being with us today and performing this wonderful piece of music. There'll be a pattern which repeats itself throughout our time together. There will be um, an introduction to each word, a reading from scripture, a short meditation about that reading and word. Then the quartet will perform Haydn's music attached to that word. And then there'll be a time of silence, which will be about between five and ten minutes, depending on which word. And I encourage you to use that time of silence to reflect on uh, what we've heard from God's word, on that word of Christ to pray, uh, to think about those events that are unfolding before us as we think today. Let me pray as we begin our time together. As we gather from the busyness of our daily lives, Father, please help us now in this time and space we have to reflect back to those wonderful and fearful events of Good Friday some 2,000 years ago. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we reflect afresh on the agony of Christ as he hung on the cross, and yet also as we reflect on his love and compassion that you would remind us afresh of exactly what the cross has won for each one of us. We pray that you would help us to delight afresh in the cross. Help us not to take it for granted. May each one of us leave here renewed in our endeavor to keep the cross of Christ at the center of our hearts and our lives. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. And so we come now to our first word from the lips of Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. And that word or or that phrase can be found in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23. And if you want to follow that in the church Bibles, it is on page 1060. 
Luke chapter 23, and I will read verses 33 to 34. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They say that you can tell a lot about a person as they approach their own death. As death approaches and a person faces up to what lies ahead of them, often their deepest emotions, their their deepest qualities come to the surface. Well, what emotions, what qualities do we find coming to the surface as Jesus faced his death? On the cross. Well, verse 34 tells us, Father, forgive them. And let's just be clear about what they have been doing to Jesus. He has been betrayed by one of his followers, he has been denied by his other closest friends and followers, he has been taunted and mocked and humiliated and tortured and falsely accused of doing things he has not done and ironically falsely condemned for claiming to be the very person he actually is. And now he hangs from a wooden cross, a crown of thorns pressed into his head, with nails piercing through his hands and feet. And yet, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And who are they? Verse 35 mentions the people standing watching. I think this refers to the Jewish crowd who just a week ago were crying out Hosanna as Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Then there's the rulers and also, verse 36, the soldiers. An unlikely group of co-conspirators gathered around at the foot of the cross, yet united in their endeavor to mock and insult and crucify Jesus. And yet, again, without prejudice, without distinction, Jesus looks down from the cross at this gathering before him, and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Perhaps there is an echo here of 
those famous words written by the prophet Isaiah centuries before about God's servants who would come and suffer. And Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The picture here is not of someone who is actually silent, but rather someone who does not speak out in their defense or to attack those who are causing the suffering. They say you can tell a lot about a person by the way they approach their own death. And as we behold Jesus approaching his death on the cross, we see at the deepest level, at the most profound, Jesus is loving. He is compassionate. He is concerned for the other. Why do we doubt God's love for us when the storms and trials come into our lives and that small voice whispers into our ear, does God love us? For here we see for the world to to, to watch the deepest, most profound quality of the Son of God. He prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing.
We come now to our second word from the lips of Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. And our second word comes again from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23, and I read from verse 39. That's page 1060 of the Church Bibles, Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There is tremendous irony going on in this account. The first criminal mocks Jesus. He says to to Jesus, verse 39, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Of course, the irony is that at that very moment, as Jesus hangs from the cross, bleeding and gasping for his every breath in total weakness, at that very moment, he is indeed winning the salvation for others. And as if to underline this irony, and as if to give us a reminder that Christ is indeed saving others at this very moment of weakness, the second criminal turns and speaks up, and he has a totally different attitude to the first. He, he sees Jesus, and he sees something different about him. He says in verse 41, This man has done nothing wrong. We don't know what it was about Jesus which made this second criminal say that. Maybe he had encountered Jesus before this moment. Maybe it was the way Jesus was carrying himself through this agony. We don't know, but we do know there was something about Jesus which this man saw, some truth, which made him say, this man has done nothing wrong. And the second criminal believes the ironic sign above Jesus. Here is the king of the Jews. For he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now this second criminal sees Jesus for who he is, the king of kings, even as he dies in his brokenness. And make no mistake, what we are watching before our eyes is a man being saved. For Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The first criminal mocks, you say you can save others. He can, he is saving others. To the Jewish mind, the idea of paradise was the idea of the place where God dwelled, the place of peace and shalom. And this second criminal would have understood what Jesus meant when he said paradise. And I hope you can see that what the the second man gets is far better than he dared hope for. He says... In verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's begging that the the king of kings would would not forget that there was a a person out there somewhere on on the fringe of society. And maybe, just maybe, he would be welcomed into the kingdom. Maybe by the back door. But Jesus says, no, you will be with me in paradise. I couldn't help but think of the echoes back to the prodigal son some eight chapters before in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, where 
If you know the story, that the, the, the prodigal son has been away and he has squandered his living and he has turned around and as he stumbles back towards the father, broken and humiliated, do you remember what he says to himself? He, he kind of rehearses in his mind what he might say to his father and he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. That is the best the son could imagine. Maybe, just maybe, I could be welcomed back. Not as a son, but but as a hired man, maybe, if my father is gracious. But do you remember the story? The father doesn't take him back as a hired servant, but as a beloved son. Right back into the center of that community. And I think that there are echoes here of this story. The criminal thinks, I am on the edge of society. I have no hope, but maybe, just maybe, I might sneak in the back door of this new kingdom. But the king of kings says, no, you can come and be with me right at the center of my new kingdom. Nothing less than salvation is taking place at this moment when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I know of no clearer proof that grace is sufficient to enter God's new kingdom than what we find in this story. For this criminal is guilty. He he is condemned rightly for what he has done. And as he hangs there, nailed to a cross, he has no chance to undo the wrong he has done or in any way to earn the right to be in God's kingdom. He has no chance to go out and give money to charity or to be a good husband or a good father. He has no chance to be kind to his neighbor or demonstrate that he's a good person. That is all gone and past. It is over. And yet what this man needs and what we need is not our works, but we need grace. And that is why as the son hangs bleeding and gasping on the cross, he is able to save others. For that is what it takes to save sinners like you and like me. Maybe we could reflect on grace these next few moments. That we bring nothing to our salvation like that criminal. Christ does everything. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise.
We come now to our third word from the lips of Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. And this third word is taken from John chapter 19. It's on page 1088 in the church Bibles if you want to follow along. John chapter 19 and I read from verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his house. Dear woman, here is your son. Here is your mother. Stress and pressure can do strange things to people. I'm sure you've all watched other people go through pressurized times, uh, people experiencing heat. And often under pressure, we tend to close down and channel all the spare energy we have onto surviving that pressure, onto enduring the heat. And as we channel that emotional and, and physical energy onto survival, we often are unable to look around us and to notice those in and around our lives. And if, if you've journeyed with someone through pressure and stress, you can often feel that closing down happening as they sort of go into their shell to survive. And so come and marvel afresh at the words of Jesus. Has any human ever experienced this level of pressure and heat? There is the physical agony that I'm sure we we know of well. Uh, Jesus has been beaten by the Romans. His back has been ripped open by the whips. There is a crown of thorns thrust into his forehead. Nails have been driven through his skin and bones and tendons. I guess the physical agony would make most people scream in pain. Then there's the emotional agony of being betrayed by uh, one of his 12, uh, of being abandoned by his closest friends. There is the psychological agony of being falsely accused, of claiming to be someone that he's not, but he actually is. It is hard to be falsely accused. I was once falsely accused by a certain authority. It was uh, Leicestershire County Council authority for um, parking in a public car park without a valid parking ticket. I did actually have a valid parking ticket. I had bought one. I put it on my windscreen. I went shopping and it had fallen off. 
And um, I felt the injustice of being falsely accused. I was given a ticket in the post, which I fought vigorously. Um, because no one likes to be falsely accused, even over a parking ticket. I cannot even imagine what it would feel like to be accused of blasphemy when you really are God, when you are the King of Kings. And yet none of the agonies I've mentioned so far are the agonies that made Jesus uh, weep tears like blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he looked forward to what was about to happen to him. No, the agony which made him weep was the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath. And as we watch him on the cross, that is what is happening to him. Has any human ever endured this kind of pressure, this, this heat? And yet, in the midst of this utter agony, Jesus is able to look around him to notice the other. He sees his mother watching beneath him, losing a son. Well, she has other Sons, but in a country with no welfare state, to lose a son of the age of Jesus was to lose a key breadwinner in the house. It was to face potential poverty in the future, beyond, obviously, the emotional agony of watching one of your children die. He sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is surely John, the author of the fourth gospel. And Jesus says to his mother, here is your new son. And to John, here is your new mother. In his moment of utter agony and pressure, Jesus is able to look around and to notice the other, to to work out how even then he could bless and care for and minister to those who were close to him and that he cared about. I don't want to push this too far, but I do think we get here an insight into what was going on in Jesus' mind for those three hours. And I think very simply, he was thinking about people. He was thinking about the people around him who he was saving and who he cared about. Pressure can do strange things to people. It can cause us to to close down and to focus on ourselves. Marvel afresh at Jesus who said, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother.
We come now to our fourth word from the lips of Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. It is taken from Mark chapter 15, which you can find on page 1023 in the church Bibles. Mark chapter 15, and I'll read from verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I guess sometimes the relationship between a a father and a son can be difficult or strained. Sometimes in this life, um, there can be friction and difficulties and distance between a father and a son, even perhaps isolation. But what about this particular father-son relationship that we read about in Scripture? The relationship between God the Father... And God the Son. The Bible says lots about this relationship. I've picked four brief little snapshots of some of the ways in which Scripture describes this relationship. So at the baptism of Jesus, we read in Mark 1. A voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you... I am well pleased. Elsewhere, Jesus says this about his heavenly Father. So, uh, in John 5, we read, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son. And shows him all he does. Once when questioned about the authority of Jesus. Jesus replied. I am not alone. I stand with the father. Who sent me. Well later on. Just before his arrest. In that great prayer in John 17. Jesus prays this. Father. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me. Because you love me before the creation of the world. Has there ever been a relationship like this between a father and a son? This one stretches back through all of human history and beyond. Back through eternity past, it is a relationship of total love 
of total knowledge, of total intimacy. And yet, on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, the son knows the reason why he has been forsaken. He's not looking for an answer. No, this cry is a cry of pure agony. Unless we be confused in any way, Mark gives us the reason for this separation. We read in verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the brightest part of the day, darkness falls. It is the darkness of God's judgment. He is judging his eternally beloved son for my sin and for your sin. And so the son cries out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That is the sound of an eternal relationship being broken. This is the first and only time in history the son will experience this separation from his father. And this wrenching, this breakage is because of our sin. Or put it another way, this is what my sin cost Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
And so we come to uh, the fifth word spoken by Christ from the cross. I thirst. These words are taken from uh, John's Gospel. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. If Jesus' fourth word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, spoke not simply of physical agony, but of spiritual agony, then these are words of physical anguish. Here again we see what it means for Jesus to lay aside his rights as the divine son of God in order to take upon himself human flesh, to become one of us, fragile, vulnerable and crucifiable, that he might pour out his life for the lives of others. The agony of his need had long been foretold, John tells us. Jesus' words fulfilling the words of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And the soldier's response fulfills Psalm 69. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And Jesus' cry is particularly poignant, for of course he is the one who promised earlier, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and drink. He who created the rolling seas and the thundering clouds, he who is himself the source of living water, submits himself to suffer thirst for our sakes. As John Stott observed, thus Jesus thirsted on the cross that we might never thirst again.
The sixth word of Jesus from the cross is, I think, in fact, the words, it is finished. We read on in John's Gospel, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is uh, no cry of despair, no cry of defeat, but rather it is a shout of triumph. It is finished. The verb in the Greek has the sense it is complete, it is fulfilled, it is accomplished. I have completed that which I was sent to do. I have fulfilled the scriptures. I have suffered for the sins of my people. Throughout his life, Jesus had announced with his coming the arrival of the kingdom of God. And now in his death, he inaugurates it. Jesus is accomplishing that which we could not. The sinless one becoming sin for the sake of sinners. Winning forgiveness and opening up a new and living way to the Father. The verb indicates an action that has lasting consequences. For Christ achieves on the cross a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for anyone and everyone who would come to him in humble repentance and trust. Because Jesus has completed the work of salvation, we don't have to. Salvation is not ours to win, it is ours to receive. We cannot, by our actions, add to his sacrifice, but we must accept it. It is finished. Here, then, is all the difference between other religions and Christianity where other religions call us to try and climb our way up to heaven by being good enough. It is finished, speaks of a God who has come down to us, who with his final breath would give us holiness and God himself. Salvation is one. We need only turn to and trust the victor, to receive his victory.
We read in Luke's Gospel. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had resolved to die as he had lived, as the perfect son, in total submission to the will of his father. And here, Jesus' final words record the final yielding of his life to his father. They are words of trust, of a son who knows his father well, and he submits himself into his father's hands willingly and earnestly. These final words may echo again the words of the psalmist, Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Psalm 31 is a psalm of trust in the midst of affliction. And note too the theme of Jesus' control and authority. All the gospel writers note this in their various ways. Luke records how Jesus calls out, as he puts it, with a loud voice. Jesus determines for himself the moment he would commit his spirit to his father. He lays his life down of his own accord. No one and nothing takes it from him. The words of John Stott. Death did not claim him as its victim. He seized it as its victor.
most merciful God, in the cross of Jesus we see the cost of our sin and the depth of your love. In humble hope and fear may we place at his feet all that we have and all that we are. May we submit to him who suffered for us. And grant that by faith in him who suffered on the cross, may we triumph in the power of his victory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.